0: How do we explore the fertile relationship between oral lineage transmission and textual transmission? Between heaven and earth and between planting ourselves in solid ground and catching the wind of inspiration to fly high? What are the parallels between Buddhist transmission from India to China many centuries ago and the current transmission of Chinese medicine to the West? How can we collaborate in the creative pursuit of academic and clinical knowledge, honor the voices of our medical ancestors, in Leo Locke's beautiful phrase, and overcome the challenges in translating and communicating what is ultimately the inexpressible wisdom of the ancient Chinese sages? And what does any of this have to do with flying a kite and completing a circle? That's what we're discussing in today's inaugural episode of A Pebble in the Cosmic Pond, released on the new moon and first day of the dragon month of 2023. I am delighted to be your host, Dr. Sabina Virms, and I'm joined today by Leo Locke, our resident purveyor of multiple perspectives, as he calls himself, among the seven fools of the bamboo grove that make up the core of our Pebble in the Cosmic Pond team. If you enjoy this conversation, I invite you to subscribe to my newsletter at happygoatproductions.com slash connect in order to get notified of future episodes. New episodes get released once a month on the new moon for the general public with bonus episodes coming out on the full moon for members of my Imperial Tudor mentorship. Find out more at imperialtudor.com slash membership. And now let's get going and have fun listening. Thanks for joining us.
1: Yes, thank you for having me, Sabina
0: it is such a it is such an honor and a joy and and so first of all I should say that that I'm really really grateful that you are that you're part of this and um that you and I have cooked this up and even even gotten as far as having this conversation um
1: so you brought up several topics just now or about for potential discussion. Would you like to share that with the audience?
0: Sure. So the first thing I would love to explore is um or the, the three things that I would like to just dis- explore are the the, the overarching vision. And and really that maybe that that's the topic for, for our conversation. Is is why are we having this conversation? Because there's a lot of information out there, and there are a lot of people doing podcasts. And I don't want to waste anybody's time. And I don't want to, it's important for me that I don't add to noise. Hmm. Um yeah. so you brought up a really important point just now about the as you called it the skeleton the framework of of this podcast and the importance of a historical or textual basis of whatever conversation we are going to have
1: yeah i think that's really important to ground us into like uh a timeline a progression and also something we can all Come back to because I think in a lot of discussions around Chinese language, culture, ideas, philosophies, medicine, sometimes it can get very uh, expansive and vast very quickly and creative and innovative. So, so, and that's like it feels like a, a, a kite that has been cut loose and it's just flying oh everywhere in the in the the, the sky right yeah. without some type of um grounding some type of some t- kind of tie to a verifiable uh basis so it's not that That we is a beautiful image yeah so it's not that we cannot innovate it is not that we cannot be creative But there is a history to these ideas. There is a textual basis to these ideas. That sounds very scholastic, but in reality, that's also the lived experience of the Chinese people for the last whatever, how many thousands of years. We just cannot just innovate these experiences uh, out of existence as if they didn't exist.
0: And that's, and I should mention your, your um many offerings. Uh, I don't know what your offerings are. And, I mean, I know you just did this wonderful video on the, uh, on the meditation sickness, but I think your, your, your whole project is still called the voices of our ancestors, Right
1: yeah the voices of of our medical ancestors
0: which i think is a really wonderful I, I i try and honor those voices so i think that's a that's a really important part for whatever conversation we're going to have
1: yeah so that's that's what i'm thinking that the feeling that i have had for a long time i think i i kind of sense that you you share very similar ideals and goals as I do. So if I can uh, articulate that a little more, is that I want the tone to be informative and educational rather than an accusation. Because I think a lot of times what I've observed uh, in online forums and discussion Mm -hmm. is that people who are more, uh versed in the history and the textual basis of things can come across as a little bit uh like accusing people of not knowing sometimes
0: well and and I'm sure I have i I I have been kicked out of Facebook <laughs> groups. For for my lack of diplomacy. And quite honestly, when I got when I've gotten kicked out of certain groups, it's been a relief, because to <laughs> me, it's like, as an academic and a historian, I get into these arguments with people yes. who don't know anything about the history. And they're telling me, th- they want to argue with me about my translations being wrong based on their understanding of yin and yang. And I'm like, I just had an experience like that with Somebody who just read a blog of mine and he keeps writing these really, really long emails telling me that my understanding of yin and yang is wrong. And I'm telling him that, wait a minute, here is, and of course, what's, I mean, there is really what any translation always includes the translator's voice. And I think there is a little piece, there's room for Criticism there always is, and it ultimately it is impossible to translate a passage from the Tao Te Ching or the I Ching or or, or Lao Tzu or, or or you know the Najing. It's impossible to translate that into modern English and to bring everything across because Chinese has so many layers of meaning, and in English you have to pick one layer. At the yes. exclusion of others. So this person has a point, but at the same time, I'm like, don't shoot the messenger, don't get at don't get mad at me, because my reading of the text is actually at least informed by Sinology, by philosophy, by my medical understanding, and by 30 years of studying the stuff. Whereas People get offended by what I say, and I don't know if you have that experience as well. And their their foundation is only their personal experience and their personal understanding, their way of making meaning of yin and yang. And sometimes that's completely like the balloon, the, the kite that you were talking about. It's clipped off where it's just, it is not rooted in in the reality of the Chinese history, and maybe that's okay. Like that's the tricky part.
1: Yeah. So so that I th- I'm so glad that you're so open and honest about your experience. Because that's really important. I think that's where sort of my, my intention comes in is how can we bridge the gap yeah. be- between you? and the the person who responded to your blog because i think there is a gap of information and education there that no one has come out to say the reason why sabina is so frustrated
0: yeah
1: about this and the reason why you the other person felt so uh empowered to point out these or that problem is there is a gap between these two poles a gap of knowledge and understanding so my hope for the podcast is to actually using various topics to kind of bring out these foundational framework and principles that empower you as a scholar to say what you say and to be confident of what you mean by a certain translation Mm -hmm. and the accuracy of your translation. And also, so that way, people who are not uh, that well-versed and educated in this side of the knowledge can at least have the framework of understanding. Because I think that the gap is so huge that in your position, you could no longer see why they're reacting that way because you have come so far into this the scholastic understanding of things. But as clinicians, as, as practitioners, there's actually an amazing lack of knowledge to get to where you are. And I think without going through yeah. a professional, like a PhD program at a regular university, or if somebody hasn't spent a lot of years studying those fundamentals, it is actually unfathomable, unimaginable for the regular our clinically oriented <laughs> colleagues to even get to where you are, to even understand why you are saying things the way you say things. Right, for I I'll give you an example. There is a lot of talk about classical Chinese medicine. Yeah. You, you probably noticed in the last 10, 20, uh probably 10 years, 10, yeah, 15 years, yes. right? The use of classics. Mm-hmm. So on uh the scholars of Chinese medicine group on Facebook, you know, which I've been a part of and you were part of, you know, over the many years, last seven years uh I've helped answer all these questions that is I, I have, have I... to say
0: Leo I so admire your patience and your dedication with groups like that oh, you you okay. have been doing such a service in that area I just oh. I I'm it, it I really appreciate and the grace with which you for whatever reason you are able to to see that gap and step into, I think you just put it really beautifully.
1: Because I think the perhaps one of the reasons is I'm primarily a clinician. yeah, And then I'm a scholar, <laughs> right? So I think from that perspective, I think it's a little bit easier for me to understand because once upon a time, I was without the scholastic information as well. So I know what I used to think and use uh, without those scholastic foundation, Mm -hmm. oh, I would have thought just like they do. So what is the difference? The difference is it's almost like I'm I'm a medium standing between the the clinician pole of things and the scholars pole of things and then trying to bridge the two and let people from both sides like trying to understand each other without first jumping into animosity and accusations right which is yeah. really unnecessary but it is unavoidable or inevitable if there is not that uh foundation or that knowledge to bring to 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 bridge the gap between the two sides that so and I for, think
0: I think what's really important is you somehow you just you just made me think of this that a conversation that the goal of a conversation any con this is my intention for our podcast. Any conversation we're gonna have on this podcast, anybody who will be a part of this podcast, I will want all of us to commit and call each other on this. And that that will be, I mean, please do this to me, and I really mean this honestly. The goal of any conversation should be not to make myself right and the other person wrong, which is self-righteousness, but it should be the pursuit of knowledge.
1: Yes, and I have a visual of it. I have this visual uh, since I talked to you last time. Which is, it's very interesting. If you want to visualize a very typical sort of uh, animosity-filled and accusation-filled conversation or exchange, it's like two lines and they're meeting and what uh, what is you call that? Uh, banging heads against each other. Two lines, yeah. pointed lines, right? Two arrows mm-hmm. trying to fight out who is the superior one, who has more prestige or what. I don't know, whatever right? Yeah. Yeah. But my my vision of this is very different. I visualize a circle, a, a, a full moon,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? It, it has 360 degrees. And everybody's contribution is a degree. It's mm-hmm. like I contribute, or a clock face, I contribute at 12 o'clock, you contribute at six o'clock or seven o'clock and somebody contributes at two o'clock you know it, mm-hmm. it all comes in and it points to the center but they don't have to fight each other out because the circle has 360 degrees point of view and all views can be accepted into the circle they're coming from different perspective and different layers but we don't have to position them as oppositional right off the bat but it seems like that is the mode of conversation of most of these discussion these days is there so it's like is a presupposed oppositional uh dynamic right off the bat this not a Sort of, I, I'm going to listen you out. Oh, you're coming from at 7.30 p.m. And mm, actually, yeah. I'm at 3.45. They're both valid and both good. It's just coming from a different perspective and layers.
0: Okay, I'm going to add another dimension here. Yes, this is yes. a beautiful image. I love it. And I, I I'm, I'm right there with you. The next question is, are we going to have a single circle mm. or is there are, are there concentric circles? In other words, is there a voice that is further out on the circle, which is then only going to – a voice of the same noise level, if you mm-hmm. wish. hmm If that voice is really close to the core of the circle, it will take up a quarter of that 360 degrees.
1: Mm -hmm. If the voice
0: Mm -hmm. is way out on the circle, because circles can be used to... Circles can also be used for power, for power over. Circles can be used to exclude there's the inner circle and the outer circle and maybe there is something to be said about an inner circle so so one of the ah. one of the things we've talked about for our little podcast is this kind of silly i like i like to be silly this idea you know what is the nature of of collaboration and how are we going to draw other people in how are we going who is going to be involved We're, we this is not going to be a public conversation the way my tea time talks have been where anybody can jump in and take up, you know, 20 minutes and go on and on about their understanding, which may or may not be informed on the topic. Mm. But instead, we are thinking for each conversation to have a few people. Um, and that would be the inner circle. And then the outer circle gets to listen. Or we were we were playing with this idea of the seven, what I call the seven fools of the bamboo grove, that we would maybe have a rotating group of seven people with different strengths. So you know where I'm going with this? Yeah. What do you think yeah. about how would that fit into your image? I would
1: think at least we need a moderator, which is you <laughs> at this point. <laughs> Because I think you really have a sense of uh, fairness in you, so I at this point I will rely on your instinct to I to guess be the moderator.
0: Are we going to have a a ball that will get kicked around?
1: Yeah, I don't know. That's a well. We'll see how it goes
0: because right. you also mentioned this idea about the kite between heaven and earth and ah. i really because the the whole topic is cosmic resonance and in to me this traditional chinese image of humanity being located between heaven and earth is so powerful and it's something that i have been toying with and exploring for decades as a as a farmer as somebody i love to have my feet in the earth i'm a really earthy grounded person and i also you know hang out with my animals a lot and i love to sit with the bees and talk to the trees so i see the value of the, or i see the need for grounding us I like mm-hmm. that word grounding as we are aiming for the sky and yeah. I see in a lot of chinese conversations or not chinese but chinese medicine conversations in the west it's like you said I like that image of the kite flying too high up up into the sky mm-hmm. the pie in the sky thing yeah. and maybe not
1: yeah, so our grounding line would be the textual basis and the history of it. Right? For for things to not go too far out of hand, we always yeah. come back to our foundation, which is what is the history and what are the textual basis of these ideas.
0: Then we, what we can, about oral transmission?
1: That, can, <laughs> that, that could be the one higher in the sky. So we have to set our yes. line somewhere, right? Because the oral yes. transmission is tricky because it cannot be objectively verifiable outside of the group. Absolutely. So that cannot be our most, uh, not that that's not valuable, but for the sake exactly. of maintaining ground and shape of this endeavor of the podcast, we have to sort of put the stakes down somewhere and i think the textual basis is a very solid place to build this is a great
0: i like this way of thinking about it so how are we going to prevent the kite from being lifted far off into the sky by the winds of our inspiration and our passion. And we're going to have these high-flying, literally, I love language, yeah. these high-flying conversations. What yes. are we going to use to tether us to reality? Mm,
1: that's the beautiful reality. Word. Yeah.
0: And mm, I bo- think texts are great. And at the same time, as a historian, I am also... Very much aware of the limitations. And as yes. an anthropologist.
1: Yes. And that is exactly what most clinicians do not have, that perspective. And that is one of the things that I've always wanted to talk about. Is as practitioners and clinicians, we can become so enamored, yeah, with the lineage, with the teacher, with the gurus that we become unable or un- and unwilling to receive information that is in, con- in contrary to what we have been taught within a particular yes. lineage. So, so throughout our history of Chinese medicine, there has always been this the dynamics of the oral transmission and the the textual uh basis of things i'll give you a very personal uh example right in our family we have you know chinese family are extend large extended families we have an uncle so to speak uh you know not blood related but a very close family friend who is a uh, lineage holder, you know, it's like my grandpa taught me this. And that's the, the tricks and the, the, the sort of the secret techniques of the family. Right. So, so I'm going to teach that to you. So when I heard that tech secret technique, I said, wait a minute. That's exactly the line from the Neijing. That's what the Neijing taught. For two, yes. 2,000 years, we know uh, uh-huh. Wei Zheng Du Qi Yang Ming Right? For Wei uh, atrophy problems, you focus on the Yangming Ming uh, channels or vessels or whatever. You know, Zhu Uh Li. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah.
1: But you see the beauty of it is that if you only have the textual transmission, you wouldn't have the lived uh experience yeah. and the conv- what is the conviction that it really works
0: yeah uh, it's completely you, different right? you're absolutely right he yes. has
1: been doing it for how many decades now and how many tens and th- hundreds of thousands of patients have been revived with stroke or wilting problems by focusing on the yangming region on the leg near zusanli yeah So, but he didn't know that that is a line from the (laughs) Neijing. For him, it was a secret transmission that his grandpa taught him. And this is so,
0: I love, I love when that happens. I love, I, that's a perfect example.
1: Right. So, so what I want, I, I wish for the podcast is the bringing these two perspectives in into the same circle and see how they actually elevate each other, uh, clarify each other, mm-hmm. and mutually support each other rather than in opposition of each other. Because sometimes, well, a lot of times in the West right now, there seems to be this opposition of the textual people and the p- clinic practical people. Because the uh, the the clinicians don't like to get their bubble burst right you don't go and poke their enamorment bubble. Well
0: and and you know actually what I would argue is that what I see is and and something I just had a conversation about that um yesterday with my with my classical Chinese students who are all practitioners, none of them are students anymore. They're all most of them are are like leading practitioners in their countries. And what I tell them is is there's nothing wrong with um stepping into your expertise and claiming your expertise as a practitioner. And what I see a lot of people in Chinese medicine do is they feel like they have to, disguise their their personal experience by finding classical quotes to legitimize their knowledge yeah and it's really it can be it can be classical text can be a wonderful source of inspiration and for expanding your knowledge but it can also be an inauthentic way of packaging something in a way that's that's misleading because Somebody can pick a line from a text and reshape it to support. You can find a statement on anything in the classics and subtly reformulate it to support your contemporary clinical practice, which mm-hmm. you found to be effective. And to me, it's like, yes. no, if you've been practicing for 20, 30 years and you've, you've, you've figured out a way that is really clinically effective you don't need to pretend that you're a scholar like to me it's it's okay if you're i really also want to create a space where we honor the value of clinical experience
1: yes and that is my sentiment as well and i will put it like uh your clinical experience is valid enough. There's no need, if you can't find it from the classics, to pull a line to modify it, to justify your clinical success. There's really no need. I I think sometimes it comes down to sort of a lack of confidence still. I think so. Yeah, because I think if somebody has been doing something successfully for 20, 30 years, if you can't find a line... Just say you can't find the line. This is my line. Yes, yes. There's no need to twist the old lines to to fit your the new one. I think it comes down to sort of the confidence like level. That, yeah. yeah. And 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 I don't like I don't want to accuse people or shame people for doing that. I think that's where we come in to educate people and give people the permission. And confidence and assurance that it is okay to say this is my clinical experience based on 20 years of clinical practice, successful practice, and this is what the Nijing says, and they don't agree with each other, or my version is slightly different. I I don't see any problem with that, but don't twist the. Original the original meaning of the line to fit what you want to present to the world,
0: and maybe maybe a better approach would be to embrace these. Uh, um, Pierce Salguero had a wonderful thing about that in one of his um videos or or, or blog posts about that place of discomfort being the really the be, the place of engagement where. That's where, when you're in a conference and 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 you're you you have a conversation, and that that place where you have a little bit of a disagreement, a different way of looking at something, that you embrace that rather than becoming defensive. Yeah, it's like oh oh, this is great. This is a, this happens to be the same. But what if in your example earlier, what if your uncle's transmission had been different from the naging like Mm. that would have been a great opportunity for for growth
1: yeah absolutely
0: rather than it being a a source of conflict and a source of the clinician saying i know i'm right because this works and the academic saying you're wrong because what you're doing contradicts the naging (laughs) Like and that's the end of the conversation, right? Yes. And, yes. That's and you see and nobody you, learns.
1: And you see those two points there, two arrows, pointed arrows. Yes. Right? Yes. And then I think what I would like to bring to the podcast and with you and with other guests is to bring it to a circle yes. and say the reason why there's these pointed uh you know conversations and trying to figure out who is right or wrong is that we're we're missing the other perspectives because throughout, if we look at the textual history and the text of Chinese medicine, what we have today translated into English is not even 0.5% of the corpus, yeah? That's another thing. Uh, Until I started this conversation several years ago, there's absolutely no awareness. No, I shouldn't use the word absolutely. It appeared to be there was no conversation or even the awareness of this idea of how many medical texts were there from the beginning of time till, say, the end of the Qing Dynasty in 1911. Yeah. How many were there? So it turned out there was at least, because... Um the Shanghai TCM, they commissioned a 10-year project to catalog all these texts, and at least it was 40,000 up to the year 20. So I counted at least 5,000 texts until 1911.
0: Oh, I have, I have you have um, you have books that are that are huge the that, catalogs, that are records right? of because you have to include Japanese and Korean and Vietnamese. Yeah. I mean, right? Yeah. We're really talking about East Asian.
1: Yeah. Medicine. And some of these texts is like a multi-volume, like a 40 volume hundred to a 65 volume text. Which and amounts... this, you know,
0: this really takes me to what you mentioned earlier about the question of the classics because when you're talking about classical medicine in a field like gynecology which is where I have my head mm-hmm. how can we talk about in the west how can we talk about somebody practicing specializing in gynecology from a classical perspective if they can read chinese because if we if we define classical as the classical age, as it is usually done in academic period. I mean, how do we define classical? But in yes. Chinese medicine circles, it's usually defined as the classics from the Han Dynasty. So yes. the ah, Han but- Dynasty classics don't have a whole lot of stuff on, on gynecology. Gynecology didn't exist as a professional specialization until the Song Dynasty. So how can you spe- how can you say you specialize? You're a specialist, you're an expert in gynecology when 99.99, like basically all the texts on gynecology and Chinese medicine are not accessible to you.
1: So that's another thing that, see, what kind of, that's what I love about our, about our conversation is what drilling down to the very minute nitty-gritty of things, but it's so important because this if this foundation is not clarified, we'll have endless number of arguments about this medicine, right? For example, you just mentioned classical. So (laughs) what I've noticed about how people ask questions is they will say something like, this is like the most common thing, oh, what did the classics say about this blah blah, this condition or this line or this uh, point or whatever, right? Yeah. So here comes the question: What is the definition of classical oh. <laughs> in the the questioner's question? So what yes. I found out most of the time, after clarifying again and again with them over the last seven years. Is that most people who are not trained in the scholastic part of things? Usually, what they mean is pre modern. What the scholars would term as pre modern. Because pre modern has a very specific definition yeah. in Chinese texts pre 1911, before the end, uh, at the end of the Qing dynasty, before the establishment of the republic, uh, republican era. The Ming that is that is how is defined pre-modern in Chinese medical texts. I think. So, or I would,
0: I would perhaps say.
1: Would do you have a different definition?
0: It's so tricky that that term is so Ah. difficult. But I would perhaps say before the influence of Western medicine. But that's no. That's you can't say that because what is Western medicine? We're like pre pre pre-modern. Pre, I mean, I would not. I'm not sure. I would. That's interesting. Say pre-modern yeah. as 1911. Like to me, because it really depends on the text, because there were texts earlier that were already engaging with. But what is the definition of modern? But I like yeah. pre-modern. Yeah, I think what I have
1: learned. Yeah. Maybe this is not an accurate statement. See, even that on this term we are debating, right? <laughs> So for me, like I just proposed, yeah. Uh, as I've heard from other, uh, read in other, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, research and articles on this in the English language, when it comes to Chinese text, seems like when they say when scholars say pre-modern, they usually mean before the Republican era, yeah. 19 yeah. Right. So that's an easier and cleaner definition it's clean. than yes. classical. Because yes. there is no such terms in Chinese. That's another thing. See, people don't realize is mm-hmm. this, these type of conversations only exist in English and non-Chinese languages. Yes. We don't speak like that among ourselves as Chinese, native Chinese speakers. No such thing. When we say classical, usually we mean jingdian. Jingdian means da, Right most of the time it means the Neijing, the Nanjing, Shanghai Zabing, or you know Shanghai, whatever. And then some people include the Jing. It, it's kind of fixed. Yeah. Yeah. Ming Dynasty's Tag Tang Dynasty nobody calls it jingdian. But yeah. in the western conversation, classical can mean anything that is pre-modern.
0: But, it can but be, I think Things have changed a little bit where where I think actually I think Liu Li Hong and Huang Huang teachers like that have really had a big impact, where now there are a lot more people in the West who are practicing classical Chinese medicine in, in a much stricter definition that is more like the Chinese jing fang, the the yeah. really that that goes back to the but then to me it's like how can you claim to be practicing han dynasty medicine because all of us have learned or those of you who are clinical practitioners you have learned to look at the classics to read the classics to diagnose and apply the classics in you, our by, contemporary
1: world, uh, so by classics you mean the four big, the the Shanghan Lun and the Neijing
0: and the Nanjing, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this idea that we can practice Neijing acupuncture or or you know Zhang Zhong Jing, that we can practice like Zhang Zhong Jing, to me as a medical anthropologist is is really impossible. It doesn't make so, sense.
1: So that would be a really fascinating topic to explore because that would be a perspective that's very hard to understand by clinicians. So what do you mean by that? Right. So this is something In, we can really explore as a just a podcast. Because I think the perspectives that you have as a historian, uh those things are right now before you explain it, it's completely inaccessible to the clinician. They would not have thought like that. So how can it not? I, I prescribed Mao Huang Tang the other day a co- com- in complete agreement with the line. Or I pre- prescribe, you know, Huang Dian E Jiao Tang the other day and the person yes. slept really well. Uh, I, he has the symptoms of what the line describes. I, I, I read the line. I saw the patient with the symptoms as described in the line. I gave the formula and he recovered. How can you say that we could not or we cannot practice the medicine or Zhang Zhongjing? That would what, be the, right? That would be the response.
0: Even the classical people, they use biomedical thinking. They, ah, they so use biomedical, they use things like hormones or ovulation. Like I'm teaching a class right now on pregnancy and there are all these classical people in my class and they're like, what do I do for ovulation? And I'm like, I'm sorry, the, the concept of ovulation or menopause doesn't exist in classical Chinese medicine.
1: Ah, I see what where you're coming from. That's another conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you mean because, yeah, okay, okay. Because that is the. You see, so so that's an interesting uh, thing as well. Is there's so many different types of practice and lineages, right? So different lineages, and different groups of schools of practitioners will include and exclude different amount of different levels of modern terms into their discussions. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So so that is a very interesting conversation uh, to have to, to really kind of explore. It's like, to what extent do you say something is classical and to what extent is not? Is the line very distinct and clear? or it is not. So I think there are various perspectives on that depending on where we're coming from. Yeah. Are we coming from more a historian uh sort of uh academic point of view or from the uh more clinician oriented point of view. I think there we can explore those. I think that's exactly uh I think the spirit of the podcast.
0: And maybe the 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 way to diffuse this mm-hmm. this i'm i'm gesturing in a podcast <laughs> i can't do that this 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 danger of a conversation going as two arrows against each other is yeah. if we keep in mind that our goal is not to define what is classical and what is not but our goal is to figure out how to Bring the classic, what, what is it that we had here? How to talk about, this is from my notes, the timeless message from the ancient sages. We want to honor and and, and express, bring to the conversation. We want to have a space here to, 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 to explore the timeless message from the ancient sages and then bring it into the present moment.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: that, that again, it's the balance between, in a way, it's the balance between heaven and earth.
1: Yeah, and everything in between. Yeah. All the spaces in between. Because just like in our uh, discussion just now, just thinking about it, there's like, like I said, there's different degrees of inclusion and exclusion of modern terms and modern concepts into the classical space, right? So it's a spectrum, it's a continuum.
0: Can, I like the image of the circle actually. Yeah. Rather than having the 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 continuum with the two, with yeah, the two uh-huh. poles, if we say for our particular conversation we take the timeless message as the core.
1: Yeah. And the con- conti- uh, the continuum can always be shaped into a circle. Into what? In a circle, into a shape yes. of a circle.
0: Yes. Yes, right.
1: you as long as we come back to that, yeah, to make whole, right the, so the, that's why the Sanskrit term for the full moon is sampurna. You sum up the entire circle, the all the different perspective of a circle. That's another thing we can explore. <laughs> you know the, there's a very powerful um sort of uh, wisdom in the prefixes in Sanskrit. The sum, just like um, in English, Indo-European languages, we yeah. use S-U-M, the sum, as well, to sum things up. In Sanskrit, it's the same thing. You go around the circle, you have a full moon.
0: And and Sanskrit, I really wanted to learn Sanskrit when I was um, getting my PhD. Ah. And I had, a, Buddhism was one of my, my, my minors. And there was like three of us who really wanted to get Dr. Jamello, our professor in the history of Buddhism, to teach us Sanskrit. And the university had a rule that you had to have at least five students for a course, so they wouldn't let us let <laughs> us study Sanskrit. And, and it's one of my huge regrets. And, it, and we think, can revisit
1: that. We can revisit that in the context because why is that relevant? Oh, he, here's another of my favorite topic. Why is Buddhist things Ooh. relevant to the transmission of Chinese medicine? Because, and it's not just
0: Buddhism, right? Or are you talking specifically about I mean, Buddhism? I'm just,
1: just using Buddhist, the Buddhist experience as a A mirror as a antecedent as a president of the transmission of knowledge of Chinese medicine from China or from Sinosphere to the West. Because there's so many parallels between these two modes of transmission, right? How did Buddhism is a completely foreign thing to the Chinese? Was a for completely foreign thing. It was yes, a completely exactly. Indian experience. Yeah. How did the Indians and the inter- intermediaries and the native Chinese people start and completed this transmission in a span of almost 1,000 years? And how is that experience? How many parallels are yes. there between this transmission? and the transmission then from China to the west in terms of chinese medicine the translation the choice of yeah. terms yes the financial the financial yep. uh support
0: so I think the institutionalization, yeah, exactly. the classics, you, you know the, the big canons, ones. <laughs> the Buddhist, absolutely. No, I go on about this all the time. Right? And it's beautiful because in Buddhism, so much of it was written. So we have such a detailed record of this yes. engagement and including, the mutual fertilization and the intermediaries. And, oh, this is going to be so fun, Leo.
1: Including? The in, unimaginable consequence of, a, of an error of translation in a single term. Because like you said, everything was written down and everything. Yeah. We can go back and look at their choice of translations and trace it. One of the my favorite terms is the no-self versus not-self debate. The Wu,
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, because I've traced it. Because I said, ah,
0: yeah. yeah. If
1: there is these mistakes or this mistranslation yeah. from Chinese to English in terms of the transmission of Chinese medical terms, yeah, what w- was it like when it happened a thousand years ago? When Sanskrit or other Sanskrit-like languages were translated into Chinese for the first time, for the second time, or for the 10th time over across of several centuries. And what consequence did it does it have until today as the Chinese term was transmitted to the Japanese and the Japanese brought it to California? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and the... And the, the, or
0: even the difference between Korea and Japan, for yeah. example, the different schools.
1: So I think there's a Asian lot people. of lessons we can learn because I think a lot yes. of the confusion, frustrations that contemporary uh, members of the Chinese community have or Chinese medicine community have about the transmission yeah. has already been experienced and explored by the Buddhists a thousand years ago. I just I'm like, why are you so frustrated? You didn't realize that in order for this type of transmission to happen to that large extent, you need money and people across a thousand years.
0: So I think that's and another another perspective is if we look at Chinese Buddhism from being detached, if we are not. Traditional ah. Indian Buddhists, but if we are looking at Chinese Buddhism from today, and we go back a thousand years, and what we, what I see, is the cross fertilization and yes. the beautiful thing that emerged, which is very, very different from historical original Buddhism. But who cares? Yeah, it's Chinese and, Buddhism.
1: And then, what was a, the original Buddhism, even back in India?
0: Right, right. I know nothing about that. Yeah, I used to have to teach so, this so stuff. It same, was very the, stressful.
1: <laughs> it was the same thing. There were many sectarian lineages. And once the Buddha passed away, they start splitting.
0: Yeah. So that's yeah. another
1: lesson for us: is once the founder passed away, it almost immediately the faction started, the different schools started.
0: Yeah.
1: Right, and then. How is that any different from the the evolution of Chinese medicine in China itself?
0: You know, and I think that's why I love. I just had a great insight, Leo. Thank you so much. I think I did a text reading in my in my mentorship group last night or yesterday mm-hmm. on n nineteen, and um, Alan Tower was there, and. It was just so much fun. I love these text readings because I think it was like those Buddhist translation teams that were happening in the Tang Dynasty. And it wasn't an argument, again, to come back to these errors of this being right and this being wrong, but it was this fruitful collaboration of, of creating something in a conversation in a collaboration and coming to I don't want to call it a truth because we're talking about Buddhism or medicine and and the capital T truth is a difficult, you know, it it's a non-entity in Buddhism, and it's certainly questionable when we're talking about paradigms or philosophy or or anything like that, um, at least in my perspective. But that that translation is a process of making meaning that shouldn't be confrontational. It should never be I'm right and you're wrong, but it should be about people collaborating.
1: Yes. To make
0: meaning together in the engagement of of two different paradigms coming together. Or or
1: many or different multi-paradigms. Many paradigms.
0: different, yeah. Yeah. And
1: and I want to and I want to point out something is that's creative. That, and that is we are in an unprecedented age right now that can allow that type of atmosphere to flourish to its fullest extent. Because back in the days where there's no computer technology, the real estate of a page is so precious.
0: Mm.
1: You have to come, multiple meanings and layers have to compete for the same spot. Mm-hmm. But nowadays we have infinite storage. The multiple layers of perspective and interpretations can all be included in a digital
0: product. You see okay. that I hear you and at the same time, I think there's a limitation because everything is written down. And mm-hmm. I think to take it back to your insistent when we talked about the vision for this, podcast as being the timeless boundless ineffable there is we we have the fact that we now have all this information and it's all written and it's stored it is a wonderful opportunity and at the same time it is taking us away from the ineffable aspect of the timeless message. Do you know what I'm trying to say?
1: Mm, we need to explore that more. It needs a lot and, more custom It's the
0: it's the Tao Dao, Fei Chang, Dao. It's the, the 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 aspect of the ancient teachings that and I don't know how how you can we can how can we claim to be transmitting or even playing with or exploring something that was written down when it's like Brenda Hood keeps saying, it's the finger pointing at the moon, it's not the moon.
1: Yes, that's it. You can stay true to the text and have multiple uh, projections or uh, what do you call the holographic projections of the text in different dimensions in universe. And And yet
0: they're all projections.
1: Yes, because that's what the... If we're going to go back to Buddhism, that's bhava. We make our worlds. You and I lived in different worlds, in different bhava, even as we speak now. It's all made up by the mind, right? I mean, taking in of our past experience and present environment, we make our world. So whether we do it or not, we're making worlds. It's just the worlds that we make, we kind of try to tie it back. To the text. That's all. We're making worlds, you know, world making. Human beings are world making people. <laughs> and 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 when the and all we have all... no
0: idea what we're doing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And ho- and that's the term consensual reality. The good thing that we come together and we agree upon certain things as real and as consensually real, like this this Zoom call.
0: (laughs) You know, but, but, okay, so let's take it back to the resonance. Because Mm -hmm. to me, when I go there, from the Buddhist perspective or whatever, and and I'm by no means a a, a Buddhist scholar, It, it got to be too brainy for me which I think was the intention of the texts, um,
1: and and then, uh, if I may bring in a perspective, that depends on whose text you are reading. Of <laughs> yeah, there are very very philosophical, technical, yes. mathematical Buddhist, yes, and there are v- and also the one liner mantra Buddhist.
0: And and it was probably that <laughs> my professor Robert Jamella was very much an intellectual scholar in that old tradition, and he was very much attracted to these doctrinal, very yeah. very detailed arguments, and that's what we were. Those were the texts we were working on.
1: Yeah. So so for example, Master Nan Huaijin, which I talked to you about the other day, he his famous for saying he says. Uh, the Indians are very logical and mathematical, but the Chinese hate that mode of operating. So, Chinese people, we hide our signs in poetry. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so that's why Chan or Zen, um, became prominent and was birthed in China because the Chinese couldn't deal with the the computer like mathematical way of processing the world like some of the Indian philosophers and teachers yeah. so yeah. they have to make uh, romantic poetic yeah. versions of the same thing in the Chinese image right so so that's the that's another thing that it's interesting. just came to my mind, which is, you see, the transmission of Buddhism from a very different philosophical and emotional soil like India versus China, mm-hmm. and then now China versus the West. Mm-hmm. So that's another way of looking at these topics is What does the cultural preferences of the recipient of the knowledge, how do they shape and uh, remake and reformulate the teachings? That's another thing, right? The Indians and the Chinese were and still very different people.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Different sense of aesthetics, for example, you know, if we were to bring the original Guan Yin or Avalokiteshvara into the Chinese space, he would be deemed a demon by Chinese aesthetics. That's why she, she needs to be transformed into a female and dressed in white flowing dress. <laughs> there is no such thing as Guan Yin in India. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, she she will be dressed in you know, uh, animal skin, and is a male and has an arrow or whatever you know, and a rope and with you know
0: fangs
1: of a pig.
0: <laughs> I'm right? thinking, I'm thinking of a of a of a grapevine. I'm thinking of of um. What's the fancy word? Miniculture? Is that the word? The terroir where you take uh-huh. a, yeah, a vine, yeah. a German mulaturga or something, and you yes. plant it in, in Chile. And, and the wine that you end up with is, is a completely different wine.
1: Well, that's another topic.
0: Well, you just when brought we... up the emo- yeah. emotional soil.
1: Yeah, exactly. Which is a great term. Well, same thing with the herbs. Can we transplant, yep. like, Di huang from right. Henan and then to Oregon? Will it come out the same? No, we don't know. Yeah, we haven't had enough data, right? So that's or another do,
0: or or do we translate? Yeah, like that. Oh, that, oh okay, okay. Yeah, <laughs> I think I, we have we have unlimited topics to explore, and I love the I, I love your idea of. Um, of bringing in different people in the conversation for each one. So when we're talking about Buddhism, we'll bring in people who are practicing Buddhists who have who have knowledge in that area. And when we're talking about um, growing herbs, maybe we can bring ah, in yes. other people.
1: Yes, yes. And there's so many parallels as we have explored, right? Between the transmission of the physical herb from one tegua to another, mm-hmm. And the ideas from one cultural space to another, a soil to another. Yeah. So like, like mini- Wu
0: Wei. That's yeah. that's something. The meaning of Wu Wei is something I would I would really I've played with mm-hmm. for a long time. Oh, there are there are a million
1: topics. Yeah. You think that's enough for
0: today? I think it is. <laughs> Remember, we said we were gonna try and keep them short. It's a relative (laughs) term for somebody who writes 500-page books all the time. Well, it's it's very nice
1: talking to you, Davina.
0: Yeah, to be continued. Yes. Bye, Leo. Leo. Thank you so much.
1: Bye-bye.